As you're seated, you can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I'll read this chapter for us as we begin tonight. We'll be looking at verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5 tonight. Revelation chapter 1. Hear now God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and from his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
Well, let's pray as we begin to reflect on this text. Thank you, Lord, that you give us your word that tells us of who you are, that reveals to us not only our sin, but also your plan of redeeming us from our sins. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we fall short of your glory. We come now to the hearing and to the preaching of your word with feeble minds, distracted hearts, uh, Lord, and even maybe weighed down by cares of this world and our own sin. Cleanse us anew in the blood of Christ. Give us a level of focus and level of understanding, Lord. Might you come and teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. John Owen wrote in his work on the glory of Christ this, There is no contemplation of the glory of Christ that ought more to affect the hearts of men, hearts of them that do believe with delight and joy than this, of the recapitulation, that is the summing up of all things in him. One view by faith of him in the place of God as guiding as the supreme head of the whole creation, moving, acting, guiding, and dispossessing of it will bring in spiritual refreshment unto a believing soul. John Owen reminds us it's good for us to behold our God. And in particular, it's good for us uh, to behold our triune God, to think about each person of the Trinity and and the unique uh, characteristics that each person possesses. We confess God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, all equally glorious. Therefore, It is right that we behold the glory of God in all the persons of the Trinity. And I believe that's what John, in this greeting to the seven churches, is calling us to do tonight. He's calling us to behold our God, particularly behold our Trinitarian God. Revelation is a Trinitarian book. As we go through this book, you'll see that that the, the Trinity appears. That word doesn't appear, but, but in this text we, we have uh, John revealing to us uh, what the church has always believed, uh, that God is Trinity. And as we were reminded, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it, it re, apocalyptic literature has a way of pulling back the clouds, as it were, letting us go to heaven and see the world from God's perspective. But we also get to see heaven. We get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven now as we live on this earth. And so throughout Revelation, we'll see uh, these glimpses uh, of worship in heaven and worship of God. And as John pulls back the curtains for us, he wants us to behold our God. That, that he has something to say to us in this greeting. That he highlights an aspect of each person of the Trinity and wants us to reflect on each of that. 
So our aim tonight, our goal, and my exhortation to you is behold your God. More specifically, behold your triune God. But before we get here, let's look at John's, uh, the context that he is addressing the churches here as a letter. We noted in our Sunday school that Revelation is really uh, partakes of three genres, and one of them is letter. And, and this verse tonight shows us why, that John really gives the standard uh, greeting uh, uh, for a letter, the format. Uh, for a letter in the Greco-Roman world. When we write a letter today, we say, Dear such and such, we have our letter. Sincerely, you sign your name. In the Greco-Roman world, you wrote your name first, and then you wrote it uh, to who it was written, and then you, you wrote greetings. So that's what John uh, has here. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. John is our author. John, and that's all he says. John. We believe this is John the Apostle, the author of the Gospels and the other three epistles by that name. But he, he doesn't need to say, I'm John the Apostle, uh, I, I'm, because the, the people to which he was writing would, would know who he is. So he is John. In verse 1, he's called a servant. That's really all we're told about uh, this writer, John. And it's believed that John was, uh, in his later life, a pastor in Ephesus, and so that would make him familiar with these congregations in, in Asia Minor, what would be Western, modern-day Turkey, that this, these letters are, are written to. So John is our author, he's our writer, and he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is the first time we meet the number seven in the book of Revelation, and this this. Uh, seven occurs 54 times in this book. This is John's favorite number. And, and we noted that this, this takes on symbolic meaning of completeness, perfect, perfection, wholeness. But just because this number is some symbolic in its meaning does not mean that the reference to the churches is not historical. That John is really writing to seven historical, literally, congregations that existed in Asia Minor in the first century. But he says he's writing to the churches that are in Asia. Are these the only churches that were in Asia? No. We know from Scripture in early church history there, there, are, there were churches in Troas, Colossae, Hierapolis, Magnesia, Trellis. So why does John pick these seven? Well, once again, he, he picks out seven uh, historical congregations, but he's using that seven to be symbolic for completeness. So he's addressing seven, but he's using the number seven to, to refer to the whole church. So this letter is to the whole church, not merely to the seven churches. We, when we get to chapters two and three, when he writes individual letters to these churches, we, we note that each letter ends, uh, you know, what the Spirit says to the churches telling us that what is written in each individual letter isn't just for that one congregation, but for all the churches. 
So John is writing to the seven churches here, meaning he's writing to all of the churches. And by implication, he's writing to the church of Jesus Christ even today. The Moratorian Canon, which is an early uh, uh, compilation of the Canon of Scripture in AD 180, says this, John 2 in the Apocalypse, though he writes to seven churches, yet speaks to all. So early on, uh, Christians understood that this uh, seven had a symbolic meaning uh, to refer to the whole church. And once again, why is he doing this? Well, this is how apocalyptic literature works. You don't just say, I'm going to write to the whole churches. You, you, you use the symbolic uh, number here because that's the genre. So those are the recipients, the seven churches, and he gives the standard greeting, grace, and peace. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, he would he would do this as well. In the Greco-Roman world, you would normally just use a, a word for greetings, but, but that was changed by Christians to say grace to you, or grace and peace to you. And Paul would often say grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, John goes on to say who this grace and peace is from. Who is it from? It's from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And it's from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And it's from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we see there's a structure here that tells us that John is referring to each member of the Trinity. Father, Spirit, and Son. And so that's the structure of his greeting. And he's telling us something about each person of the Trinity. He's saying, behold your God. And then tells us something specific. So that will be our task for the rest of this evening, is to look at each a reference here to the person of the Trinity and what specific aspect John is wanting us to behold in our God. So behold your God. By beholding the Father in His eternality and self-existence. By beholding the Father in His eternality and self-existence. John says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now we have a difficulty here that we don't see in our English Bible but if, if you were the original uh, Greek-speaking audience, uh, the way John forms this uh, prepositional phrase is he actually doesn't use correct grammar. And if you've studied a language that uses prepositions that take certain cases, that's the way the Greek language uh, works here. And normally the, the preposition from here would take the genitive case, but it takes the nominative case which is grammatically incorrect. So did John forget his elementary Greek grammar? Well, no, because actually in the next phrase, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's in the genitive case, so he does it correctly there. So was this a lapse of, of his mind? Did, 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 he, did he just not edit this correctly? Why would John use improper grammar? And the answer to this, which is likely the answer to any problem in the book of Revelation, is the solution is found in the Old Testament. 
that John actually uses improper grammar here to allude to the Old Testament. That the, the translation of the one who is that John keeps in the nominative case is, is the exact translation in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Bible, of the divine name as revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am. So as, as the Jews translated that, that Hebrew text, uh, from, from Hebrew, Yahweh, into Greek, they translated it with this same uh, phrase here, the one who is. That's how I am came down to us in Greek. So, so John does not change the rendering of God's name here to fit the grammatical construction of standard Greek, but he rather keeps it from its original context to alert the reader by this unusual grammatical construction that he's referring to the Old Testament scene where Yahweh revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush. So, so this is a, these grammatical mistakes, as you were, are called solecisms, S-O-L-E-C-I-S-M. And they're actually quite common in the book of Revelation. Places where John uses improper grammar. <clears throat> but as people have studied this, uh, <clears throat> they, have, they have come to realize that at least in most of these cases, it's believed that John, where he's not using proper grammar, does it intentionally as a way to allude to the Old Testament. So this is a time before we have uh, footnotes and quotation marks, and so you have to find a way uh, to, to let your readers or your hearers know that I'm, I'm referring to a, 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 an Old Testament passage. So John, at times, uh, uses something that's not grammatically correct as he pulls out something from the Old Testament and just puts it in, and that's to jar the reader's ear or eye uh, to say, what's, what's, that doesn't sound right, ah, but that does sound like something that I know from my Old Testament. So unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily pick up uh, for us in, in our translations, but that is clear in the book of Revelation. So, so where the grammar uh, for, for John, uh, he, he's, he decides to break it at times because he's trying to make an allusion to the Old Testament. So theology trumps grammar. Moreover, this phrase, the one who is and who was and who is to come, in, in John's day, uh, in Judaism, that was sort of an extended way to refer to the divine name, Yahweh, or I am. So John could have said, as others say in their standard greetings, grace and peace from God the Father. That's very simple. But this is apocalyptic literature, so we have to be complex. He, instead, he says, grace and peace from the one who is and who was and who is coming. And he does that because he's trying to highlight some aspect of God, the source of this grace and peace. So what is he highlighting? Well, he's highlighting God's eternality. That God is eternal. He was he is, he is coming. He's always been, 
He is now and will ever, forevermore will be. There never was a time when God was not. God was before time. That's actually beyond our ability to comprehend that God is eternal. That should humble us. We all have clear, time-bound limitations. As the Psalm 90 tells us, you know, we're, we're 70 or 80 years, our average lifespan. Some people live a little less, some people live a little more, but, but we all are very limited, and even if you live to be 100 years old, that's very short in light of eternity. We have a clear beginning, we have a clear end. God does not. He always was and always will be. So God is eternal. Secondly, God is self-existent. That comes out in in the Old Testament reference here to Exodus 3.14, where God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am. Who's, who, 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 who am I to say, God, that is sending me? You, you tell them, I am has sent you. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. What does this mean? Well, you know, all sorts of people have different opinions, but certainly, what is he trying to say? I'm God. I'm self-existent. I am perfectly whole, complete, and without need of anything. I am not reliant on any other thing for my existence. I am. Moses, that's the God who's going with you. That's the God who's empowering you. You, Moses, you're reliant on other creatures for your existence. Pharaoh is reliant on other creatures for their existence. Their gods are reliant on other things for their existence. Not so with me, Moses. I am. So when John writes to the church, grace and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come, he's saying, church... And as we'll see, this is a church that is increasingly feeling the pressure from its society to compromise and give in. The persecution against believers is increasing. Christians are being more and more marginalized. It seems that evil is triumphing and there is no vindication for the righteous. John says grace and peace from the one who is and who was and who is coming. The authorities and the people that you are facing in reality have not been around very long. God has. He is eternal. He is the self-existent one. He simply is. And this is the God that is with you to give you grace and peace. And by implication... This is the God who is with us. Grace and peace from, come from our God who has always existed. 
and is not dependent on anything or anyone for his existence. This is our God. So John says, Behold your God by beholding the glory of the Father in his eternality and self-existence. Secondly, behold your God by beholding the Holy Spirit in his strengthening power and omnipresence. Behold your God by beholding the Holy Spirit in his strengthening power and omnipresence. Now some commentators read the seven spirits here as a reference to angels. But I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and this is why. First, as we saw when we looked at the structure of this greeting, John says grace and peace, and then he tells us where this grace and peace is from. From the one who is, who was, and is to come, from the seven spirits, and from Jesus Christ. So meaning, the source of grace and peace are these three entities. And grace and peace don't come from angels. Only God is the source of grace and peace. And secondly, why would angels be sandwiched between a greeting of grace and peace from the Father and the Son? It it just doesn't make sense to me. So I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So does that mean there are seven Holy Spirits? Is John confused? Once again, seven is a symbolic number here, meaning completeness or fullness, or in this, in this instance, likely perfection. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the perfect Spirit of the living God. Some see a reference here to Isaiah chapter 11. This could be true. In Isaiah 11, it tells us of this root of David, this branch that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So including the spirit of the Lord there, there are seven aspects here of the spirit, of the Lord, of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. So some say that's the sevenfold spirit, and so John is uh, ref, uh, referring to that. I don't think there's any really reason to know why, if or if not, that is the case. But what we do know is that this term seven spirits does occur again in the book of Revelation. Turn over to chapter 4. Verse 5. <clears throat> From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven torches that are before the throne of God, we're told, are the seven spirits of God. Well, if you think of seven torches... What other burning seven do, do we have in the book of Revelation? Well, we, we read it in, in the end of chapter 1 here. We have the seven lampstands, 
which are the seven churches. Now, the, the lampstands and, tor- and torches here, they are different words, so they're different entities, but they're associated, that the imagery is similar, so we should take them together, that these shining things, they're both shining things before God. They're both source of light before God. Which makes sense because the Holy Spirit, is He not associated with the church? That He is the one who indwells the church. He is the one who fills believers here. So John is saying to the church, this perfect, full, complete Spirit of God is the one who indwells you and helps you and strengthens you in your task. He he has great strengthening power. And it's this perfect Holy Spirit of God, not some minor spirit, not some regional spirit, limited spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells you, who empowers you. Secondly, seven spirits occur in chapter 5. Turn over there. Chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I I saw a lamb standing as though it has been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we have seven spirits again, and and here we're told that the seven spirits are associated with the seven eyes, which are a part uh, of the appearance of the Lamb. People that think this is angels think, well, the spirits sent out into the earth, these are angels who who are sent out as ministering spirits. But I think even more so, it could be said that the Holy Spirit goes and ministers in the church through God's people. And and we, we see here this idea of seven eyes. The eyes are, 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 are known, you know, a, a reference to knowledge and understanding. That's their symbolism here. So what the, this, this spirit is omnipresent, meaning this spirit is, is, is everywhere. So he, John, he's not only the commissioning power for the church, this Holy Spirit, there is no place that the spirit is not. The church does not need to fear that they will never be in a place where the Spirit is not. He's all over the earth. David said this in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The Spirit of, of the Lord is throughout the earth. So this is highlighting the, the omnipresence of the Spirit. So what is, what is this imagery saying? What is John trying to say now to the church? He's saying, church, the Spirit of God in all His strength is with you. He's, he's with you in your job 
when there is pressure, as there was at this time, to offer sacrifices to foreign gods. If you want to keep your trade, part of the trade is to offer sacrifices to the deity associated with that trade. And so if you want to keep it, you better offer the sacrifices. But John saying the Holy Spirit is with you to, to help you hold fast to Christ when tempted to give in. He's with you when you are imprisoned. He's with you when you are called to testify to the name of Christ. He's with you even when you may be asked to face death for Christ's sake, as many believers in the book of Revelation are pictured as martyrs. He's saying, behold your God, this seven spirits which are the throne of God. He it is who empowers you to live for God in this world. And this is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us in this age. We may be weak in the tasks that God gives us to do. You may feel weak in your struggle against your sin. You may feel weak in your boldness to evangelize your coworker or your neighbor. We may feel weak to carry out the duties of a faithful gospel church, but the power of the Holy Spirit of God is with us. This is the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. He is all-powerful and sufficient to strengthen us for the tasks at hand. There is no place that He is not. The Holy Spirit has no problem getting to Downingtown. So be strengthened by this truth. God's Spirit is with you. Behold your God by beholding the Holy Spirit in His strengthening power and omnipresence. Thirdly, behold your God by beholding the Son in His victory and sovereignty. His victory and sovereignty. Three things are told us about Jesus. We're told that He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And if you, if you were paying careful attention, you, you would notice that all three of these phrases find their origin in Psalm 89. And so it's believed by many that, that, that John in this text is referring to Psalm 89. As we saw, Psalm 89, it's a lament over the people's failure and, and disfavor they have fallen into be, with the Lord because of their disobedience to God. But nevertheless, it celebrates God's faithfulness to His covenant with David and reassures the people's faith of, in God's covenant faithfulness. So tur- turn to Psalm 89 if, if you're not already there. Our references are found in verse 27 and 37. We'll look at 37 first because that is the the text that has faithful witness. 
Once again, we have a solecism here. We have a, a, a improper use of grammar. That that the by the by how John refers to faithful witness, and once again he does this because he pulls this straight from uh, the Old Testament in its Greek version and implants it, and he shows us. I, I'm alluding to something here uh, by uh, his use of grammar. Look at verse 36. His offspring shall endure forever. This is talking about David and and his offspring. That remember, God had given a promise to David that he would have an heir on the throne forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. As the sun rises and the sun sets, these are things, uh, that is David's throne before God. Then it says, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the sky. So what is being said here in Psalm 36 and 37? First, about, uh, in its context about David. We're saying, as the sun and the moon are faithful witnesses... To God's uh, order of creation. That, that you and I do not go to bed at night and wonder if the next day the sun's going to come up. Barring Jesus come and, and bring all things to their conclusion, we assume the sun will rise and the sun will set. And if it's a clear night and, the, and we're in the right season, we can see the moon. They don't disappear. They, they keep going. We... In fact, they're, they're so consistent, we, we can measure our sunrises, our sunsets, we, we get our years, our calendar around our seasons, of, around these, uh, the greater light and the lesser light, as Scripture has it. We can predict tide schedules. Why, the, these things are faithful witnesses to God's ordering and preserving of His creation. That every day... We see the sun and the moon. It is a faithful witness to God's uh, in His creation. And so God is telling, in this context here, He's saying, as the moon and sun are faithful witnesses uh, to my faithfulness to keep the creation going, so too a, a, a Davidic heir on the throne is my faithful witness to my covenant promises to David. That as sure as the sun rise and the moon shine at night, David will have an heir on the throne. And that is a faithful witness uh, to me. A Davidic monarch on the throne is a faithful witness to Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. So that's what it meant in the context. So now we, we come to... to uh, the book of Revelation, it says Jesus is the faithful witness. Many commentators note that, that this psalm borrows from Psalm 89, but most would interpret faithful witness here to mean Jesus during his life faithfully testified to the truth of God and was a faithful witness in, in the proclamation of the truth of God. And that is true. And, and we know that this whole idea of testifying or bearing witness is very important to the book of Revelation. In fact, Antipas in, in the, the church of Thyatira, I believe, that is, 
He, he dies. He's martyred. He is called a faithful witness. So that, that is legitimate. But if Psalm 89 is our source text, uh, then what faithful witness means there, we should think that's how John is using it if he's borrowing that language. So what is John uh, trying to say? As the moon is a testimony to God's covenant faithfulness with creation, he will be faithful to fulfill the promise to David. The continuation of the Davidic throne is a faithful witness to God's faithfulness. Jesus Christ, as the ultimate inheritor of the Davidic throne, who has conquered death and now has ascended into heaven, and he reigns there, that reality is a faithful witness to God's covenant promises to David. So Revelation is all about showing how everything the Old Testament promised has now reached its culmination in Jesus Christ. So at the very beginning here, John is telling us the Davidic covenant, the promises of an eternal kingdom to a Davidic descendant, that is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is that faithful witness to God's faithfulness in fulfilling this promise to David. Secondly, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. In Psalm 89, verse 27, of this heir, this Davidic heir, God says, I will make him the firstborn. Now we can have three meanings in the word firstborn. In the Jewish context, if you were the firstborn child, the firstborn son, you received a double share of the inheritance. So it can mean that. Secondly, if, if it's in a royal household, the, the firstborn is an heir to the throne. And that is true here. As, as Jesus, we know it will be the ultimate heir to the throne. But John adds something here. That's not in Psalm 89. And that is, he says, he's firstborn of the dead. Well, that's new. What does that mean? Well, we've seen this before. If, if you've read the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul uses the same phrase. He is the head, the bo- Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So what is this idea of firstborn from the dead? Does that mean Jesus was a created being? Well, this is not saying anything about Jesus being a created being. The, the point is Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. He is the first of the, the new creation of God that will continue forever. This becomes clear in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20, Paul says, but, the, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. So in Adam all dies, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So Paul is saying, look, 
Jesus, death came from Adam, and all those in Adam inherited death. Jesus comes and he is resurrected from the dead to remain alive forever. And those aligned with him will also be resurrected from the dead and remain, remain alive forever. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first fruits of those who has, have risen. So Christ is the head and firstborn of the new creation. He was victorious over death and all united to him are as well. So as the sun and moon are faithful witnesses to God's created order, Jesus Christ is a faithful witness to God's new created order. As Christ was not abandoned in the grave, so too those united by faith in Him will not be abandoned, but will rise and partake of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the firstborn of the dead. Thirdly, He is ruler of kings on earth. It's the same phrase from from Psalm 89, meaning that the Davidic monarch was not just going to rule Israel. He was going to rule the world. All the kingdoms of the world would be subject to this Christ. So Jesus is victorious over death, and Jesus is sovereign over all the universe. So behold the Son in His victory and sovereignty. The greatest enemy against us, death, and the punishment to follow, Christ has conquered. He faced death and he was victorious over death. It did not have ultimate power over him. Once again in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So if you're in Jesus Christ, Christ has conquered death. Yes, we all have to face death at some point in this life if Jesus doesn't return. But death for the believer is merely that that translating us from one level of existence to another. So like these early believers, we could face the threat of death for testifying to Christ. But even if we don't face it for explicit testifying Christ, if you live long enough, you will face death. But we can be confident and we can conquer because Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He has conquered, risen, and reigned, and as sure as He conquered, we who are united to Him will conquer as well. Which makes me give us pause. This is only true if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. 
This is not true of every individual. He is faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. And that is only good news to believers. So if you're here tonight and you have not called on Christ to save you from your sin, this will not be true of you. Death is something to greatly fear because the wrath of God follows forever and ever and ever. But as Revelation tells us, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. He is able to save you if you repent and believe, and you can do that this very moment. And you also can behold the Son in His victory and sovereignty. Jesus is the sovereign one. Nothing is outside of His power. Jesus said that to His disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The point, you have nothing to fear. Christ is sovereign over every government. Christ is sovereign over every disease. Christ is sovereign over your coworker, your boss, over the weather. And we can rest that our Savior Savior is the ruler of, of all the kings of the earth. He is with us to help us, to guide us. So behold the, your God by beholding the Son in His victory and sovereignty. So Tonight, behold your God. This passage tonight in the book of Revelation in general opens to us the wonderful and glorious visions of our God. So as we walk in this world, it's so easy to keep our eyes on the things below and become discouraged, become worldly-minded, become consumed with this world and the things of this world. But this book, this vision, helps refresh us by getting our heads in the clouds, as it were. Helping us to see things from God's perspective. Helping us to see God in all His glory. And gives us strength to persevere in Him on this earth. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious vision. You who are the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, and the seven spirits which are before your throne, and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. We thank you that you are our sovereign God, but you are also our saving God. And we thank you for your mercies in Jesus Christ. Write these truths on our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we close...